Detroit is different. We keeping everything going with the flavor, the culture, and bringing you some interesting story about sometimes people that are from the crib, Detroit. Sometimes people that interact with the crib, somehow people do come here and engage, and then they get that Detroit flavor in them. And this is somebody that definitely has engaged, interacted, not just with Detroit, but really kind of across the world. But right now, she's got roots here at the crib. Rebecca. What's up? And we're talking about so much we met through New Detroit. We did. You have your own consultancy, and it's already a dynamic name. It's Equity Doula Equitable Doulas. It's like that already is very interesting. But most of these stories always start with Detroit is different on your Detroit story. What brought you to our great city? A few things brought me to this incredible city that we are now sitting in, and I'm so excited to be here. But Thank you. Uh, and thank you for having me, by the way. It's uh, incredible to be in this space and in your family home. Um, mm -hmm. I really love it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, what brought me to Detroit in the first place during the pandemic, I, I was looking for something a little bit different. And... Um, my work turned remote, but I work in nonprofit space. And during the very beginning of the pandemic, there was really no work for me. Mm -hmm. So it gave me an opportunity to really reassess what I was doing. And in 2018, I had made a pivot with my own organization to really focus on race and bring that into the work that I was doing in nuclear abolition and like put a stake in the ground. And I was like, this is what I'm doing. This is what I'm focusing on. And shockingly, I lost all of my funding. Um, so mm. when in 2020, when it was even harder to get funding and I was really starting to think about where where does this work alive? Where are there people who are interested in talking about race, talking about race equity? Uh, like, Where are those folks? They've mm -hmm. got to be somewhere. I know that they're somewhere. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, they just didn't happen to be, uh, at least within my circles, my circles in New York and New Jersey. So um, my partner and I had been coming out to Michigan um, for another reason. His mother lives out here and she had an accident and we've been traveling back and forth and spending more and more time in Michigan. And I will say, I'm embarrassed to say, before coming here, I swore that I would never leave the coast. Mm -hmm. I was like, I will never, ever, you won't catch me dead in the middle of the country. Like, I can't imagine. Mm -hmm. um, not being I, by ocean. Not being by the ocean. Mm -hmm. Not I, And my perception of the middle of the country is that it was very different than me. Because uh, a lot of people with red hats, I feel you. Yes. Yes. And I was like, and it is a lot of people with red hats in, uh, in the I, good mid state. I actually state. live. <laughs> I, I think I live with all of them currently, uh, up in northern Michigan. But oh, it's a that's lot of a, Trump fags still uh, all throughout Ohio and Michigan. Big banners, you know what I'm saying? Hey. I I am literally flanked on all sides. Oh, the yeah. house where I live. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yes. It was probably like some January six memorials out there that, uh, oh, around where you stay. Hey, I I, I know my I, I know my state. <laughs> I know my state. I was a truck driver at one point in time. Michigan okay. is interesting. It is. Detroit interesting. is different. Michigan is very interesting. Yes. Mm -hmm. So driving around just the state in general, though. Yes, there are those pockets of red, but there mm -hmm. are oceans of blue, mm -hmm. and 
just the the character of the people here, the conversations I was having, I was just like, hmm, maybe this is where mm. where it's at. And we started looking. I started looking for positions. I had also made the really big decision to step aside from my own nonprofit and look for work elsewhere to see if I was able to plug into an institution or an organization that was doing really good work that could further this cause. Because at the end of the day, it's about the cause. It's not about like the notoriety of your own thing or like, mm. it's about where you can do the work. And so, and people think I'm a little bit crazy. So I was like, let's move to Michigan. There like, you go. I'm ready to do this. So, so with that, um, during the pandemic and, and a lot of things just were uh, up in the air with the world uh, at that time, it, it is it doesn't seem like 2020 was long ago, but just due to things, we've never seen anything like that uh, in our lifetimes. So unprecedented. The only thing close to it was the Spanish flu. And even then, information traveled differently. A lot of things were different. Um, what. How did your family respond to coming here? What were their perceptions? And what were the things that actually set in the comfort during a time when, you know, everything was almost uncomfortable? You know? Yes. Well, my family is used to this at this point with me. Um, so I lived abroad in Asia for almost six years. Mm -hmm. um, I travel for where my passion leads me. And mm -hmm. I allow what I find my calling to be to lead me to where I need to go. And that's been kind of a cornerstone of my life and my career. So my family at this point, they're very used to uh, me coming in with some big announcement of moving halfway across the country or halfway across the world because there's a calling and I, I can't let it go. All right. So let's, let's unpack that a little bit more. Um, I just, tracking families and histories uh whereabouts in the uh in the tri-state are, are you based out of where are your people where did you go up i grew up in a place called montclair which mm -hmm. is about five miles from the city of newark mm -hmm. my i have family in newark in ivy hill area of newark if anybody mm -hmm. knows brick city um, and then the family kind of migrated up through East Orange, Elizabeth, West Orange. And uh, my mother actually moved my sister and I. She separated from my father when I was very young. Mm -hmm. And she moved us right to the border of Montclair so that we could go to those schools. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, I think that that honestly had such a huge impact on me, even as a young child. Once we started going to family barbecues and I'm like six, seven, eight years old and I'm noticing that the work that I'm doing as like a child, my cousins are doing the same work, but they're in middle school. Mm -hmm. Some of them are in high school. And I was like, how do we have the same textbook? Like you're four years older than me. That's crazy. And that was the first time my mother sat me down and she's like this this is what racism is, Rebecca. Like, this is what inequality is. This is why I moved us out of, like, our family home and moved us here because you're going to get a different education and that's going to open up doors for you. And, you know, it's, it's not lost on me um, 
the privilege that I have. Having grown up in that zip code, like zip codes <laughs> determine so much of your life. Mm-hmm. Um, so having grown up in that zip code and being someone who can pass, I can pass as really whatever I want, wherever mm-hmm. I am. And that be no matter what type of community, um, I think the ambiguous of the way I appear, people like to kind of take take me on. So if I'm around a lot of Italian people, they think I'm 100% Italian. Mm. If I'm around Israeli people, they're like, your name is Rebecca, your hair is curly, you are absolutely Israeli. I'm like, I'm not though. Mm. Um, so it, it's, I, I know that I've been afforded a great privilege and you know, that also, I won't say that it weighs heavy on me, but it is something I'm very conscious of on a daily basis. And I can follow that. And coming from um, that close, like when we think of other cities uh, that have such a strong, rich history of a blackness. So when I think of Brick City or Newark, New Jersey, uh, we definitely think of like Amiri Baraka. We think of... Uh, the rebellions that took place there, uh, similar in, in that same timeline of rebellions that took place here in Detroit, Boston, uh, Cincinnati, Cle- like many places throughout America. But definitely the um, the angst of a lot of the the people there in Newark were, were definitely felt. Uh, oh, yeah. Big time, uh, even Camden, New Jersey. Like we oh. think of uh, Camden and and that influence, and just another one of those places that makes a difference. I think culturally is the amount of wealth that flows through that area in certain pockets, and then that's blocked from the area in other pockets. So it's a uh, it it it's many. Uh, dual realities in and around that space. So in you speaking about the education and you saying that one opportunity versus the other, I would question like many times I say, like sometimes that cultural understanding, if I'm going to be, um, you know, in a neighborhood like this, neighborhoods like mine, you know, if you're going to be here, some things at school, you learn not in the classroom, but at school socially are Things that are lessons or I guess as we would maybe the colloquialism street smarts there we go street <laughs> smarts that oh, yes. uh, that actually add to things that are need to be known though you're not learning multiplication tables you're learning you know um, you know this type of behavior is the behavior of a person that may be a little manic depressant or mm-hmm. uh, a person that deals with which that can happen anywhere but with less resources things like that can escalate higher and and respond to certain things you know um do you think that your friends and family that were in schools in newark with predominantly black leadership and other black students um do you feel that their cultural experience created a richer cultural experience to connect to that black community for them and of that what what weight do you hold that social capital in the life of a child to get that at a young age? I think it's critical. And it's one of the, the differences I see in Detroit and Newark, actually, um, in the hope that is instilled here. Mm-hmm. 
and that is lacking there in Newark. Um, mm -hmm. I was also the dean of special ed in Newark for a number of years. Hmm. First school um, is right on the border of Newark and Irvington, one of the worst neighborhoods there. And there are such incredible similarities between Newark and Detroit. Even the buildings, the street names, the way that they were built, the structures, um, the way that they ran the highway through Newark, I mean the parkway in New Jersey, and I think 75 was what they ran through here in Detroit. Um, just such incredible parallels. But what I find really fascinating is the difference in the amount of hope that people feel and the amount of agency that people feel they have. And I think that that has a lot to do with the culture, but it also has to do with the amount of, um, as you were saying, what's passing through and what is allowed to, to kind of permeate into the community and how insulated in Newark, the port of Newark, one of the most lucrative and like, even where I grew up is one of the wealthiest suburbs in our country. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, entertainment, I mean, Manhattan is right. There's just so much that makes it feel almost impossible to exist within like being a person of color and the darker your skin is, the more difficult it is. It's almost suffocating the amount of pressure and yeah, it's just, it, it feels very difficult to exist there. So, so with that, um, you, you talked a little about, about race and we definitely, I want to put a pin on that. I want to revisit some of that. Yeah. But more so, let's talk about one of the things that really just like perked my ears because I just, you know, have a lot of discussions with a lot of people and you rarely run into people that's like, yeah, I was organizing against anti-nuclear, uh, nuclear, I guess, energy and and what that could be. How did you get into that? What was the connection? You know what I'm saying? And oh, yeah. then also, I assume... You know, your age, you being a woman, you being a woman of color, like, because in my mind, it is a bunch of possibly white and Indian dudes, I assume, like 60 and up in that world. It's almost all white men mm -hmm. who are, yeah, 60, 70, 80 mm -hmm. years old in that world, It like, pretty much exclusively, so... Um, I'm still shocked to this day that I'm in that space, to be honest with you. But the, again, going back to allowing my calling in life to lead me to where I need to be. Mm -hmm. um, I was working as a research analyst for Rutgers doing, um, we were working on a transformational our theory of transformational Wait, let change. Me, let me give this caveat right now for record. Okay, New Jersey doesn't have a New Jersey university, but if New Jersey were to have a New Jersey university, it would be Rutgers. So all you people that are wondering like, why the hell are they in the Big Ten? They're in the Big Ten so the Big Ten network can get New York plays for the people that go to U of M but live in New York or whatever. <laughs> but Rutgers is, is, a, is the 
College of New Jersey. I just wanted to give that so people can kind of get an understanding because for people over here, they look at it like, what, where, where is Rutgers? What is Rutgers? <laughs> What's going on? It should be New Jersey University. But it, it's actually the full name is Rutgers, the state or the, yeah, the state university. Or I don't, but anyway, mm-hmm. I went to, there's three different campuses. So it is mm-hmm. a huge, kind of very much like the University of Michigan with multiple campuses. And within those campuses, there are multiple schools. Um, mm-hmm. So I went to the Women's College Douglas at hmm. Rutgers. Okay. Um, I'm sorry. What was your question? <laughs> and it's more so, how did you get into the world of... Of, of nuclear abolition. So, yes. Yes. Uh, 2008 comes, Mm. the economy completely collapses. Mm. We were in year eight of a 10-year longitudinal study that was funded by the uh, National Board of Education. Mm. And we got a letter saying, the work you've been doing is incredible. We want you to continue, but this is the last check that you're gonna get because the money disappeared. What is, what's a longitudinal, study first uh-huh. let's 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 inform these people because i'm yeah. just gonna sit here and just be like yeah but thank you for asking a longitude so some studies they happen in a short period of time with a lot of people mm-hmm. other studies happen with uh, a smaller subset of people over a long period of time so kind of like in psychology i had to watch the gorillas in the mist movie with that lady yes that was that observational yes. see that's my my psychology. There we go. Community college. There we go. All right. Yes. Gotcha. Yes. So we were doing a long-term study on the effects of teaching social skills and bringing services into a community to see if transformation is possible. And we said, yes, absolutely transformation is possible. So let us prove to you how you do it. So what type of social skills? So we looked at a number um, of them, but we started with empathy. Empathy being Mm. really the basis, my belief and our research is showing, uh, when you can cultivate empathy within an individual, all of the other social skills kind of come along. Um, More interesting already right there. So why do you feel, um, you know, certain people are lacking empathy or not strengthening that uh, that attribute in themselves? Because we believe that people are born with these skills, but uh-huh. they're skills, they're mm. taught, they're picked up, they're learned. And if you're in an environment and you're in a space where you're not seeing that, and our society is getting further and further away from community, from being in community with one another, from learning about different people, about different histories, um, we are whitewashing so much of our history. There's more and more difficulty connecting with people. And that skill of empathy is not being taught and it's not being modeled. So it's not growing. So I, I'm going to I'm definitely going to put on my uh, millennial hat here. OK, you know, and, and, as you see, I'm going to I'm walking with you through this. Do you think this device has a lot to do with it? And then furthermore, will this device because I really do think that with this this device meaning my cell phone and, and, and social media uh smartphones in general like it's i don't know what impacts is having on society um 
But do you think that this is is one of the things that's changing the way that we connect through empathy? Because socially, it just changes the way we engage and interact. One million percent. And Hmm. I think it's so this is a tool. The Internet's always been there. Hmm. We're just tapping into it now. It's like radio waves. They've always been there, but we tapped into them and we basically hijacked them and put our own things onto them. The internet is no different. So radio changed our society, television changed our society, the internet is changing our society, but they're all tools. So you can teach people how to use them. I mean, for connection, it is incredible. But what you do with that connection, how you let people know um, we we got into the practice of being like, since there's a screen here, it means I'm separate, so I could say anything I want. Um, but we know now, through research and unfortunate studies, um, seeing that that's not true. Words matter anywhere you are. It doesn't matter if there's a screen in between us or not. Your words carry power, and they can either uplift or tear down, no matter where you are. And it's coming to those understandings, speaking about it explicitly. I, I think it's when when I was uh, working in the schools, I thought that it was ridiculous that we banned kids from their cell phones. Mm-hmm. It's like instead of banning them, because once you tell them you can't have it, then of course they want it. Um, instead of doing that, finding ways for them to use their phones throughout the school day to engage with lessons, to do more. Uh, but we don't trust each other. Um, so even in learning environments, there is no trust. And when there's no trust, there's very little learning that actually takes place. Okay. So, so in this, I, I mean, I went to the, to the device, but what were some of the ways that you would even look to present lessons to strengthen empathy, um, And then what were the groups of like how what were the ages of the people? I mean, how did the schools respond? How did the, you know, instructors respond, teachers respond? Like, how did the parents respond? Like, what was happening there? So this was uh, the project took place in Plainfield, New Jersey. And you can go and take a look because of the. There's an Internet archive. It's called the Wayback Machine, which I love. Um check it out anything you want to see from the past as they say anything you put on the internet stays there forever it does not matter if you delete it Um, but with the Wayback Machine you can go back and look at pictures from Google Maps of what Plainfield looked like before our project and after and one of the biggest things well I'll start with how we even um, started and initiated the pilot It was a, we called it a peer leadership program, um, but ours was dramatically different than kind of the typical model. Normally, peer leadership models take the best and the brightest in the school, and they match them with kids who are at risk, and they put them together. Um, And it's normally older kids who are like super popular and very smart working with underprivileged children. We decided to flip that model and we took the kids who were quote unquote the problems. We also took the students who were one suspension away from being expelled, meaning that they were going to be kicked out of the school completely, um, along with the class clowns, some of the popular kids, and then some of the really smart but quiet kids. We put 
all of them together. We did a three-month program with them, um, teaching them different skills that they would then teach to the kids who, so we made them the peer leaders. Uh, we basically took all of the misfits and all of the kids that nobody wanted to deal with, and we were like, these are the peer leaders. Because if you look at and you understand the psychology of, of people and how we interact with one another, it's normally the students who have the most energy that are, quote unquote, the problem. But our theory was, what happens if you can redirect that energy? Like, what... What would happen if you told that kid that they were the best? What happens if you tell that kid and you give them all of the support and you tell them they're the leader? What happens then? Incredible things happen. I'll just let you know. Okay. Um, so what ages? We started in middle school. Mm. So um, we went in middle school and then we scaled out both directions into elementary and into high school. We actually followed... So Some longitudinal, we, we followed them all through high school and into college. So that was the longitudinal. But then once the pilot was successful, we then um, went downstream and launched it into the elementary schools as well. Okay. And, and what type of results? Like what differences did you see in those connections between students? So it, I, I want to be clear, it's not just the peer leadership program. That was how our intervention into the school. Mm -hmm. But the other really, really important and critical piece was the, um, well, there are actually two other really critical pieces, project-based learning and uh, community service work. I'm familiar with both, but please give a definition of both. Yes. So project-based learning would be students come together to work on a project. Let's say we're learning about, um, it, an example would be putting together a small business. Um, so you're learning about math, you're learning about marketing, you're learning about advertising. So it's a way of helping students see real world application to what they're learning. And instead of saying like, we're gonna learn multiplication today, there's a huge project that's um, a number of different subjects are coming together to put this project together to teach the skills that are, are needed for that grade level, let's say. Mm -hmm. um, so that's project-based learning. And then community service is having the students go into the communities and do volunteer work. Okay. And so those three components, the peer leadership, the project-based learning, and the community service, along with support. So I'm going to throw out another nerdy term, wraparound services. Mm -hmm. So embedding... And what we mean by wraparound services, this would be mental health services, this would be daycare services, health services, all based inside of the school so that it's easily accessible. We made the schools the central point for the community. And one of the things that we saw, especially with the volunteer work that was really critical was when we first started and we approached the community, we're like, so we want to have some of our middle schoolers come into your shops and volunteer. And they're like, absolutely not. Like, mm -hmm. I would not let those kids in my shop ever. They steal from us. They would call them animals. It was like just the worst um, mm -hmm. kind of language and description of how shop owners in the community thought of the students that were in their town. Like, so 
working on those relationships. Um, we had to, as the, the staff, we had to kind of promise and do a lot of hand-holding. When it first started, we had staff from Rutgers on site with the students. It's like, we promise nothing's going to happen to your mm. store. Um, but within the first two years, we were able to pull back with the hand-holding because they were getting such incredible results. Mm -hmm. And, you know, looking now, if you look at, it's Maxon Middle School was the name of the middle school. When we started, it looked like a mini prison. It, the entire campus was surrounded by a fence with barbed wire. And then at the school building itse itself was another fence with metal detectors. Mm -hmm. Now, if you go and look, it looks like a beautiful community school. There are no fences, there's grass, there are flowers, there's no metal detector. And the community sees that as like a beacon um, to come together and actually be a community. Hmm. So, you know, transformation is possible, but what is so difficult about it, and we have the formulas, it's not that it's hard to do. What's hard to do is to have the political will to make it happen. And that's exactly where, takes a long time. that's exactly where I was gonna get into. Like, um, and, and this is interesting about this work, and we haven't even gotten to the nuclear abolition work either, but, with projects like that, when I hear that, what I think is it takes a hell of a commitment, hence the longitudinal study, from administration. And as we see even, you know, here in Detroit, they're saying, you know, hey, it's a crisis. Of, do we have enough teachers? It was already a, a, a challenge getting teachers in the classroom pre-pandemic. Definitely the what that did on, you know, the taxing of 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 mental capacity that took on a lot of instructors uh, especially the flow of teachers and it's more than just pay but pay does play a lot of options because our society is based on money and and with money you can make other decisions with those other decisions other things can heighten your quality of life where you can more comfortably look at you know grading 60 papers you know and and say like, well, man, you know, I need some new tires and I don't know if I'm going to get in. You know, if you got that tire money, you're not stressing the same. That so. and also teachers end up having to buy their own school supplies. Like not A only yeah. not only are they not mm -hmm. getting paid what they deserve and what they need. And I challenge anyone who thinks that teachers have it easy, just go spend one hour inside of a school building and tell me that you're not exhausted. Just being in that building with so much energy. Mm. I, yeah. So, <laughs> but getting that buy-in even from top to bottom with administration, because just the capacity of, of the focus of what our nation sees that investment as. Mm -hmm. As I've usually challenged most people from the whole premise of the origination of schools itself was never the packaging of the public good that is sold as, right. um, you know, I've, it's a lot, so many things to everything you're saying that I brought up over the time in all these 300 episodes plus Detroit is different. But one of the key ones that I say, like, you know, public school in America was a design because the transition from the agricultural worker yep. to the industrial worker. But really, let's take this a, a step further. A lot of white Americans did not have skill sets at all. They really 
and when I say a lot, meaning like, okay, if, you know, in like 1860, you take a group of 10 white men. Of those 10 white men, so much of it was probably four of them were working in a field associated with the maintenance and upkeep, whether that be slave catching, overseeing, things like that. Everybody wasn't a slave master or enslaved master. Let's use that term. Um, but then it was another group of like three or four people that worked in, hence a lot of other people up north, quote unquote, in the in the trade industry connected yeah. to what, what the, the works created? of enslavement, whether that be shipping across seas or whether that be making sure things would transport from the south to the north and things like that. Like the finance industry. I mean, oh, the New York the Stock Exchange. Like all of this. Yes. yes. Management. Like almost every, uh, not every, but most well, of the no, premise of the historic that. history of anything in American business deals directly with our health care, our law. Our financial systems were all created off of the need to either justify or regulate what was happening inside of the slave trade. And I was going to say not every because it's some portions just dealing with the the other. Atro well, it's three atrocities of this nation, but the other atrocity of stealing the land, because like I always say, this, uh, yeah, this, I mean, the original sin. And then the other one of the stolen, you know, like I always say, this is stolen land, stolen labor and a stolen loan. Yes. That got this country going. And, and you know, if I dare to say. Not only got this country going, but look at the capitalist system that the world now runs under. That was exported from the U.S. and that was cre that wealth was created through chattel slavery. Like this is mm. chattel capitalism, and mm. you can't convince me otherwise. Very much so. I, 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 we 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 out of eye on that one. So with that, in that same capacity, just knowing back to the education and the worker, like. It never was a public good. Nope. You know, a lot of stuff is sold as public good in America. But really, the last time I think it was probably a public good in America was maybe when uh, FDR, when Social Security dropped or something. But you know what I'm saying? Like most things here are in the interest of the, the, the basis of this country. Like I say, it's for it's for it, the design. This country functions best if you're a white man with a business and property. Yes. The further you're away from being a white man with business and property, the tougher the functionality of this country will become for you. Absolutely. You know, so education, as a lot of those white men just inherited land and inherited business, they didn't necessarily even need to have an education. They didn't understand any of the functionality of the businesses of the plantation or a lot of the even the, the financial businesses were run by what were then labeled as more like European immigrants, like second yeah. tier Europeans and things like that. But the the white well, also thinking about where white was created. White wasn't oh, yeah, created definitely. until the late 1600s. Exactly. As a social construct, because you needed to justify further as many of the Germanic tribes began to allow people to be, uh, allow enslaved people to accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Mm -hmm. Like, because Christianity hints the whole relationship between both, because at one point in time, the savagery to justify your enslavement was through the church. Yeah, exactly. And then when people say, also okay, stealing this land. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, but that goes back to schools. 
So like being at schools never really had the design to provide that public good. Mm-hmm. Right. And then especially when you have schools for black people or schools for people that aren't, you know, who this country is designed for. How do you ever see a program like that existing in the schools? What type of self-determination will it take? Do we like I, I'm just just I'm make that make sense multiple to me, minds know? of that. So I mean, there's a reason that I'm no longer working in the school system. OK, a. okay. Um, I so that specific program and initiative became so. OK. How do I answer this? In multiple levels, you asked a few different questions. Yeah. But um, the reason that policy is so critically important when we talk about this is so we were able to show change. We were able to show how you get to change. And when we're working with state administrations or even school boards, those change all the time. So looking mm-hmm. at what would be needed, what kind of framework, we went to a national model. What does it look like to have a national mandate? What does it look like to, to create a new role um, within education? And what does it look like to have that role be mandated that every single school has to have a person who is now certified in social emotional character development. And that's the route we went. And we were able to get those mandates. And this is a new professional role. You will see and um, throughout every school in the country, they're starting to talk about, uh, they call it different things. So character development, social skills, social emotional learning, Um, There's a few different ways that it's being talked about, but it is from that movement of understanding uh, the idea and the necessity of creating safe spaces. And if we don't have safe spaces, then learning's not going to happen. So that that was the goal and that's what's happening. Um, One of the main reasons I'm not necessarily so closely involved with education now is what you were saying, like I, I see the entire system being something that is very broken, uh, especially because it was never created to, to educate the people who it's educating now. So, okay, all right, and and and, and I asked that question just because you know I I I, I gotta sometimes pry deeper. Well, which, and that that's why you know. I'm bringing those theories and that idea to the fight for racism. Um, mm-hmm. I think that there's a lot that we can do with policy when we see um, the effects that it can have, and you know there's a difference between looking at national, state, and then just like city governments and Mm -hmm. being able to align folks and bring people together into coalitions. So now I'm gonna jump over to the nuclear side for one second. Mm -hmm. And that's where from, so the work that I did with Rutgers gave me the basis for my theory of change. Like I saw transformation and I saw it happen in front of my face. So like I know to, it's possible, right? I'm about to regurgitate it to, to try to speak it in Kari ease. It's, okay. So almost like that showed you the blueprint for like, okay, this is how some policy can work. This is how a study can work. You were, you were on top of it. You obviously were passionate and intimately involved in this because you've seen this manifest in a, in a community that you're connected to too. So yeah. it's like, oh, 
I I can be like, okay. I can I can make a three pointer. Here we go. Here we so go. Now, okay, I got you. All so right. I'm like, all right, I'm I'm super like excited about this. So when mm-hmm. 2008 comes and we lose all of our funding and I'm left as so I don't have advanced degrees. Instead of going and getting my masters, as I got accepted into graduate school, I deferred my enrollment to continue work on that project because mm-hmm. we got picked up nationally and it was a huge thing. We got um, a $22 million grant mm-hmm. to like roll it out statewide. And it was like, I was one of the leads on the project and it was either go to graduate school, get my master's, get my PhD, or continue work on this thing that I'm so incredibly passionate about. Another another just classic personal question that I always have with Detroit is different. How old are you at the time? When this was happening? Yep. I was in my 20s. All right, so being in your 20s, being in that position of, and this is for, for, my, for my younger heads watching this, my little homies, because I've been in not a budget like that, but just in leadership positions at a younger age. How, how did you deal with uh, that? Did you feel a lot of pressure on you? Did you feel closer responsibility about this? Did you feel as though each success, like how much did you embrace, how much did that impact your about, uh, I guess, uh, how you looked at yourself in the mirror about success, this project and you being so connected to it at that age, because separating, I know for me and some of the people I know, it's just tougher when you're like in your 20s. Yeah. How did you deal with that? This is an interesting question. No one has ever asked me, and I don't think I've ever reflected on that. Um, I I took it as a tremendous amount of pressure. Hmm. Um, I think I definitely took it on personally as this has to be successful hmm. um, I I'm I don't get very connected to money I think maybe having grown up on welfare in one of the wealthiest places around like money money is pretty fluid to me Um, And also, it sounds like a huge number, but once I calculated how many schools are in New Jersey and how many schools we were supposed to be working with with that money, it was only it it came out to like a few thousand dollars per school, which was not enough to do what they were asking us Mm -hmm. to do. So I, I don't know. That's an interesting question. I I found that entire process to be really frustrating Hmm. Um, because it was such a big number on paper. But then when we broke it down, it's like I I was still buying supplies (laughs) for for the projects because we didn't have enough money to cover everything. Um, And then and then also deal with the funding just being taken away. How did you deal with that? Because, like, I mean, at that, that age, too. felt like someone had just shot me in the heart and cut off my right arm. I'm mm-hmm. right-handed. Mm-hmm. Like, I I really, I was like, I don't know who I am now. Like, mm. what do I do now? I didn't go to graduate school. I don't have an advanced degree. Absolutely no one's hiring a researcher in an economic downturn. I was just like, mm. I was on top of the world, and now I don't even have a world. Like, huh. Hmm. It, it was a really big eye-opening moment for me. Um, I still have the letter because it was the governor who wrote to each of us hmm. to tell us that the funding was cut. 
Um, and I keep that out and I keep it as a reminder that nothing is guaranteed. That's deep. And, and I ask that just because I've been getting more in the arc of like as a person grows through life, you know, you learn certain lessons and it does have some impacts on how you move through life. But also, you know, uh, as they say, up ain't so up, down ain't so down. But, you know, when you're in the mix of it, you ain't trying to hear none of that. Mm -mm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So from there, you do have this skill set and you end up in Japan. So and it was because there was no work mm -hmm. for me here. Mm -hmm. I had a friend who was living and working in Japan and they were looking for for people. They were looking for people to do exactly what I did, which was write curriculum. That's unique. And so. Um, and it, it was for English teaching, which is incredibly popular in Japan. Um, they are obsessed with trying to learn English and English culture. So there's just a lot of opportunity there. And um, I was married at the time. So my husband and I were both able to get positions. He got a position teaching and um, I eventually transitioned into management in that company. And, you know, that's what brought me to Japan and that's what introduced me to a much deeper understanding of what happened in World War II. Um, so with that, you're there, your boots on the ground, what's happening in, in I've never been to Japan, uh, grandfather of World War II vet, um, but like we say, well, most soldiers, I mean, they're different orientation, especially black soldiers back then. Um, and understanding of Japanese culture, very different in many ways. You know, it's funny. what was it like to, to connect and see what connected you to nuclear, you know, and saying like, look, we got to stop all of this. So, and I know we're running over on time because I talk a lot. Um, no, it's cool. It's cool. We going. We going. My, so... My grandmother is Indonesian, mm -hmm. and she was in a Japanese concentration camp mm. in World War II. Mm. Um, she had a young son, my uncle Hansi, who has since passed away, but uh, he, I think he was one and a half, and the Japanese soldiers really liked him. He, they thought he was really cute. Um, so they kept her and her son alive and brought her to a concentration camp um she so when the bombs dropped in japan indonesia is pretty close it's um and the i guess the battalions that were arming the concentration camp where she was we don't know and this is her story and she's not alive anymore but she always even when i was little she would call me her a little atomic granddaughter because hmm. she said like the only reason that she survived was because when the bombs were dropped in that week, it was the 6th and the 9th of August, um, it was so chaotic in the camps that she was able to escape one night. Mm -hmm. um, a number of people escaped. Like she went a different direction. Um, people didn't want to be near her because she had a baby and they were afraid that the baby would cry and give mm -hmm. away their location. Mm -hmm. um, so she went a separate way and she ended up running into the Dutch army. Mm. Um, and they rescued her. She actually ended up marrying 
the the general who helped her and who, yeah, who rescued like, her. That sounds like a a, a movie from uh, what's that one guy? I don't know, like Tom Clancy <laughs> book or something. <laughs> yes. I, so my grandmother growing up, um, I didn't and I didn't know any of this until I was so much older because you don't talk about your traumas. Mm. Um, and my family most certainly never talked about any traumas. Like it's mm. just. We don't talk about those things. All I knew is that grandma didn't like Japan or like don't mention Japanese, Japan around grandma. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know why. I grew up loving, I mean, I'm a kid from the 80s and the 90s. Like Japan was so popular when -hmm. when I was growing up. Um, All things Japanese, like anime and things. And I loved it and I totally got into it. Um, And it, it didn't... I didn't fully understand or appreciate my grandmother's story or the story of what happened in Japan with the the bombings that we did um, Mm. until I went there. And, you know, the power of place, like, I really cannot impress upon folks enough if you have the opportunity to go visit places, even within our country. just going to the river and looking at the uh, Underground Railroad memorials here. For me, coming from the East Coast, I had no idea that the Underground Railroad ended here. Like, there's just so much about being in a place where other folks were and, like, reading about it, seeing pictures about it, and trying to understand that experience. And, you know, that's what I did in in Japan. And I, I was so overcome with emotion about what nuclear weapons actually do. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's completely indiscriminate and it, it kills civilians. I mean, we can have another discussion about war in general, but mm-hmm. the indiscriminate force of of nuclear weapons, it was just overwhelming for me. I'm a very like empathetic, emotional person. So uh, I was really, really upset going through the museum and being at the Peace Park where the epicenter is. Mm-hmm. Um, I was sitting at the river, I'm crying, I'm just like probably a hot mess, it was ridiculous. And a survivor finds me, because there mm-hmm. are a bunch of survivors that are in the park that do tours, mm-hmm. um, and they talk to people. And he he was in the middle of a tour, he stopped his tour, he came over and like sat with me and spent the afternoon with me. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and it was just so touching. His story, his family's story. He spoke English perfectly. And at that point, I'm just like reeling from all of these emotions from my family's history, the history I'm learning about Japan, and then the realization of what a nuclear weapon is, how it was created, and what and, and the fact that it, it truly was an experiment that the U.S. did. So it's interesting you bring that up, and I'm pretty sure you're very familiar with uh, the new, uh, what's his name? Uh, damn, Christopher Nolan movie. The Oppenheimer movie will be, uh, it's going to be a, a like a huge motion picture. Like I want to say it's going to be one of the bigger summer releases. So... In high school, I started at King, uh, started at King, and I had German. So, okay. like, with that, um, I don't know if a lot of people recognize the relationship that Germany had with America at the time. So, as much as America was not a part of uh, what I guess now is labeled as Hitler's access of evil, uh, his, his, you know, history is written by 
the witness, witness. <laughs> you know so where but, did hitler get his policies but, from I mean, many of the policies and everything comes straight from, you know, civil rights. I mean, when we think about like even a lot of like, I mean, now nah, going on. YouTube. I know. We're going on tangents. <laughs> but this all kind of connects because a lot of that technology, when we think about the scientists and a lot of the people that were associated with what beca what becomes of it, nuclear science, that's all German engineering, Nazi engineering yes. and a lot of that nazi engineering eventually as people were saying hey what happened to a lot of these nazis a lot of those engineers those scientists a lot of those people moved right into <laughs> california texas uh it's like huge enclaves of you know you know I, I you know we've seen it sort of in movies like former nazis that were heavy into a lot of the science so when we think of what what hitler's focus and making propaganda and radio people talk about that but it's so much more than that and 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 then also by pouring so much into hitler being so evil it it almost absolves a lot of the other uh supporters and conspirators into uh, what the nazi regime did it's so much bigger than that one character yes um and i bring this up because in this same act one of the quote-unquote allies of the Nazi regime was supposed to be the Japanese. Mm -hmm. So at one point in time, you take basically a weapon that was, so you all kind of can understand this, you take a weapon that was designed by, it's like if if me and Rebecca get into, uh, we, we for whatever reason, we about to get into a fist fight with another group of people, right? And we walking in together and we both, made ourselves whatever little weapons we gonna have and then i slide the weapon to the person that's fighting us and then it hits her that 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 my friends is what we call dropping the bombs on hiroshima yes and, and nakasaki so like the so we need to see the framework of really how this happened because it's deeper than just the whole the Pearl Harbor story and even the way the Pearl Harbor story was even told in the notification, like it's a lot of things in history where you kind of understand that America as Truman, I think kind of out of that is saying like this military industrial complex is big. Yes. Nuclear arms created a whole new, uh, a, a whole new lens of how people looked at the world and how destructive it can be how destructive it can become and even and also soon after, how much money you can make oh yeah and, now and, and even, it, it's yeah. equal it's exponentially mm -hmm. perpetuating itself and and soon after as they say maybe the forgotten war the korean war and i yeah. think a lot of americans are unaware of this and, yeah. the, and the key general that led that is a guy from michigan i forget the guy's name but um korea america as as devastating as the nuclear weapons were sent to Japan, the amount of bombing that America did to North Korea was equivalent to basically like you can you can almost bunch up like four different wars. Yes. Because America was so intently. So when people say like, why are these North Koreans so against? Because it's in the ethos of basically the history of what's being spoken is the atrocities for generations. Yes. So I just want to turn that on, not to go to Oliver Stone on you guys, but 
some of this information, you know, if you're only looking through the lens of America, which you should look through all lenses, yeah. you're going to miss some of the stories. So you're there, you see this, and then how do you, you obviously want to get connected. You have skill sets, <laughs> like, like it's well. taken. You have an interesting set of skills in organizing and knowing how to fight against things. You you, you have this, but you're in a whole nother nation, um, different political structure, different culture, just even different ways people talk to each other. Absolutely. So, so how do you get active in organizing? So it was a simple utterance. You know, this, his name is Mito-san, uh, the survivor that I met that I'm mm -hmm. speaking to. And he's telling me his story and I'm still just a mess. And I'm asking him like, well, what can I do? Like, what, what can I do to, to help further this? And he's like, I just want people to know what happened here. He's like, I really, truly believe if people just knew and understand what happened here, they would be like you. And there is no way that they could allow nuclear weapons to exist anymore. And I was like, hmm, all right, cool. I'm going to make a documentary about your life. And he was like, okay, sure. And he's like, have you ever done that before? And I was like, no, never. I know nothing about it. Um, That's what we call East Coast belief systems. <laughs> I'm just messing with It's true. But the it's New Yorkers, they be like this. <laughs> I'm just like, I'll just go do this thing. It's like, oh, we just going to make a spaceship, bro. Yeah. <laughs> and people told me that I was insane. Mm -hmm. Um Especially my ex-husband, and mm -hmm. one of the reasons he has the name X in front of him is mm -hmm. this was kind. This was where we diverged paths. Mm -hmm. um, he really felt like I was risking our um, security, but not in the world because of what I was working on, but just monetarily security mm -hmm. because it's a very it's going back into like we had just kind of reestablished ourselves after the whole research thing and losing all of our funding Which, and let, let me give another let me give another reality about japan too it is an island it's a series of islands so that means that everything needs to get shipped in so you get paid more but the cost of living is high it's not like hawaii but if it's similar it's to similar. hawaii it's, it's not like you know, so everything costs more. It's not just so like the camera, the the the, the chips, the everything. like everything costs more. So yeah. that's why definitely when it comes to budgeting and everything, I could easily see being that uh, being that husband like uh, we about to do this now. You know, you got to figure out how to you got to figure out how to rope a dope your wife, maybe possibly. <laughs> <laughs> Where I'm like, I will not be contained. Exactly. And uh, I wasn't. So, and it wasn't that I am naive. Um, people say that I'm, um, what is the word? I can't think of it right now. Anyway, we'll get back to that. But, but. I also like that you, you also gave a snapshot too of, as we talk about empathy and understanding, because relationships are relationships intimate relationships like it is shared even in friendships but as she you know she just said like her orientation of money was different so yes. maybe your husband's orientation of money is different so like it is. as you grow you or ex-husband i should say so like as you grow 
you you learn and you clarify. It's like, okay, I'm going to communicate that next time that I have a business partner that is like, hey, yo, this is how I look at it. If I got 10 G's in the bank and it's a play worth making 10 G's, I'm spending it. And then you may have a business partner like, look, if I get 10 in the bank, we can only spend two, you know, because I that need was that 8,000 cushion. That it, was him. And if that you're, was 100% him. And I was, I'm the first person mm, and he's the second. So if, if you don't kind of have the flow and the comfort, because this is all back to comfortability it is you know? and i will say at that point in time i was the person bringing in all of the money i got you so i was like bro at the end of the day you want to have a say in mm. in our in what's happening here start bringing in some more money then mm. um like I supported you to go through school. Yeah. I'm supporting your dreams of being whatever. Yeah. Right. So, so it's I like, was this like, is what, this, this is, is my, my passion project. Yeah. Yep. And, 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 and all of this does need to be shared. And I, I, I always tell you guys this when starting a business, family does business. So you need to buy in. And to me, a, pro, a documentary project is a business venture. And it's it even a, it's an artistic business venture. So that means that it may take searching for sugar man time to before you're recouping what you need. Kickstarter. <laughs> so that was my compromise. I was like, I won't use our money. I'm going to do a Kickstarter. If mm. other people don't believe in it, we won't get funding and it won't happen. See, that's reasonable. Right. Mm. I thought so. Yeah. He didn't think it would be successful. So he's like, all right, fine, whatever. Go do mm. your Kickstarter. Yeah. And I was like, I risked all my money. There we go. And he was like, oh. <laughs> so you got it? Okay. I got it. Um, I was very tenacious in reaching out to different governmental officials uh, to get them into the documentary. I wanted to film inside of the museum, inside of the actual dome. Like I, I when I'm gonna tell a story, I think it's really important for people to get the context. I mean, we've seen the picture of the mushroom cloud, we've seen the horrific images of people scarred and burned. Like I wanted a more intimate story. Um, so ha working with the museum is actually how all of this came together. Um, Working with them, working with the city of Hiroshima, once our documentary was completed, we premiered it at a number of their really big conferences. They have, um, it's called Mayors for Peace. They have a conference every four years. But people from all over the world come and talk mm. about nuclear abolition. Mm. And, you know, at this point, People are coming together and they're talking about this all the time, but it's always talked about as this thing, like we wish it could happen and we're like working really hard, but we don't actually believe anything's gonna really happen. Um, and I, I was really annoyed. And, and it's a lot of older white men. And I was like, mm -hmm. where are people like me? Like, this isn't, yeah. what's happening here? And I was like, there has to be another way. There has to be people who are thinking like me. And, um, I was really fortunate to get connected with this group. It was called The Big Project. And eventually that turned into the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons. But it was a bunch of young women in their 20s and 30s who were mm. like, we're really tired of these old men telling us that we're crazy, that like we're wasting our lives, that nothing is gonna happen. And I was like, Literally, the idea was what would happen if we just go and talk to people and ask them if they want to get rid of nuclear weapons? Like, 
what what would happen if we could mobilize enough people around the world to ask that question and everyone says they want to get rid of them like couldn't we just do it mm, that's deep so uh, what type of support were you getting as, as things drummed up it was a lot of grassroots community building and mm. um fortunately with it so Hiroshima is the city of peace, which I didn't know before going there. Uh, so there's lots of groups, lots of organizations. So I was able to, as I said, plug into this network of incredible women around the world. And we came up with a plan and we mobilized. We created mm. kits, we created trainings, we did everything for free. We started getting funding. Um, I do have to say the amount of funding coming from Scandinavia was just incredible. Um, mm. This certainly would not have happened without the funding that we received. Um, but it, it was that ability to create a mobilization kit and then just like calling up other nonprofits and other grassroots organizations and being like, hey, this is our idea. Like, it's really easy because you already do this work. You're already talking to folks. Can you just ask them this question and send it back to us and let us know what people say? And that's how, I mean, and again, long time. This took a really long time. We started in 2010, and it wasn't until 2017, well, it was like 2016 that the treaty started to come together at the UN. It wasn't until 2017 that it got passed, and that's when we won the Nobel Peace Prize for that. Wow, that's deep. And congratulations. Thank you. So, so now, as I pivot in, in this and we get to a close... <laughs> That brings me to when we met. We yes. met at the Just League conference. Um, shout out Marshall and everybody over there. Mike, uh, yes. good people. Jordy, um, New Detroit last year did the Just League conference, focusing on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, Michael Rafferty said, "Okay, this was a vision. I wanted to do something interesting, dynamic." So. I was there. Marcel was like, hey, you can do some interviews. I was like, yeah, that's me. I can make some content. That's what we do with Detroit is different. That's right. So, and your content was incredible. Thank you. Incredible. It was only because, you know, the people I'm asking questions, the jaw jabbing, talking. So there I walk in. <laughs> it, it, the conference kind of opens up and then is. Uh, is 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 like somebody on a panel that looks like they're like 20 <laughs> with a long with one long brain <laughs> between Mr. Robinson and Saeed having this discussion that's you and and then leading into it I'm like okay that's interesting I'm like okay this is an interesting discussion cuz I always as much as I, I like being present there you always wonder w where this topic is going and Detroit is a very um, you know, the Midwest itself, like some of that stuff is true. The segregation here is, is thick. You can almost feel it sometimes. Uh, hence, I, I went to one of the most conservative schools you can think of for college, for Walsh College, you know, very conservative. OK. You know? um, and I would be it would be so weird because now most of the business books have like, you know, how to be ethical as a business. That's like usually like chapter one. And by chapter four, they talk about diversity. And I always questioned the whole concept of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Mm -hmm. You know, for some businesses, it makes sense because you want to make you want to make intentional impacts on those communities. But now I'm about to play a little back and forth with you, okay? Because some other communities, like mine, 
have been so have been so, so much negative attention mm-hmm. energy has been put in the labeling and the conditioning that success in my community looks like leaving my community yeah. hence diversity equity and inclusion even in the in the consciousness of a lot of people here are internalized seeing you know another black person like oh they're gonna be lying to me they're gonna be still they're gonna be this they're gonna be that it's it's a it's like this level of uh, of a conclusion and also being that the premise of business and quote unquote America is like, hey, it's bottom line. I don't care whether you're white, black, blue, green, purple, yellow. You know, I just want to make some money, which is, which is all true. a farce in the grand scheme of things, I think, because I don't know. I'm going to push back. on you. OK, well, we're going to we gonna talk. But <laughs> this long question yes. goes directly into the root of George Floyd was like a lightning rod. To all of these corporations. And I think a lot of them were shaking in their boots. Mm-hmm. They were scared as shit. Mm-hmm. Thinking what's going to happen. We're exposed. We realize we talk about all of this. But I don't even know a black person. I think everybody got a phone call from somebody white. Like hey what can I do? And it's like uh, I don't know. You know what I'm saying? Like what do you want to do? Yes. Kind of becomes the question. This is a hot button topic. It's It's come more about. The recent video, I don't even want to watch it. No, no. There's, we already know the results of police violence. I don't need to mm-hmm. re-traumatize myself. I think those videos. I, I don't know. It's a very it. They catalyze people into action, but the fact that we need something so horrific. To catalyze people into action is disgusting. Mm. Yeah, because it, it, it kind of becomes, you know, this is more, I don't know, black death matters. You know, because that's what galvanizes the it's attention. It's death porn. Like, it's, it's out. It, mm. There's, and also the way in which we even talk about the victims of police violence that they're still put on the stand and prosecuted their entire life when it has nothing like their life and what their life was has nothing to do with the Mm. violence that was enacted upon them and you know that's one thing that really upsets me whenever any of these things happen it's not you know there is no sanctity for the dead if you're black like it doesn't matter Mm. um but that's yeah. a whole other topic. So, but with this, this conference takes place. It was some interesting discussions. I've I've had some discussions after and everything. What does this look like, especially for somebody like you? Because, like I said, I'm gonna put a pin in the race thing because you definitely could. You know, you have the ability. Like, as I'm surprised, you could be in Hollywood right now. You could play all types of things. If they'd be like, uh, all of these roles. You know what I'm saying? You could play Keisha, Consuela. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Just go down the list. Rebecca. You know what yeah. I mean? So, with this being about being involved in in work like this, focusing on race, what do you see your role in this being? And then, what do you see? corporate attention to this like do you do you look at it kind of like how i look at it like "Mm, are these people serious are they not serious and then furthermore even if they want to get serious what would it even look like for some of these organizations that were strategically built and never designed to have 
people other than old white men in positions of influence. Absolutely. And that that is the key and that's the point. So the reason that it was really important to me to kick off our conference with a history lesson about structural racism was that point right there. You know, um, and to go back quickly to one of your other points, I hate DEI, mm -hmm. like diversity, equity, inclusion. I think it's like blowing smoke up people's asses, which hmm. is why we say race equity, like hmm. very explicit. We are working on race equity um, because diversity, equity, and inclusion has become a multi-billion dollar business and we're still not seeing changes. So to me, it's saying this is really just a distraction from what actually needs to get done. So when I look at and I think about um, what is the next step? It is this idea of getting people excited about and understanding that transformation is possible. So going back to my original work, that feeling and that understanding of seeing spaces transform. I wasn't able to talk about it at that time because nobody was talking about race in the early 2000s, but it had a heck of a lot to do with healing race relations between black and white people in that region and in that city, in that neighborhood. So I know that it's possible. I've seen it be done. And then with the campaign, um, something that people told me was absolutely categorically impossible. There's absolutely no way we're going to abolish nuclear weapons, that we're going to make them illegal. And the reason that that treaty is so important is because there's money now being divested and it's being reinvested in other places. It's going to, again, it takes time for mm -hmm. us to see the actual results. So when we create projects, when we create initiatives, it's really important for us to know kind of the human psychology. We have to build in a lot of small wins to keep people motivated. And that was one of the things we learned in the campaign. So kind of bringing together the framework of what it takes to mobilize people around the world, along with the framework of transformation and bringing those together, we have the Race Equity Blueprint, which we are launching on Friday. Um, so that's going to be where, and it's, it's a lab, we're going to be experimenting there, but there are some really, really big players that have signed on um, here in Detroit and that have national presence. Um, we've been talking and working with them over the last two years. They've they self-organized, and it was because of what you said. It was when um, the lightning rod of George Floyd, these organizations all came together and they were like, oh my God, like, we have to do something. And I have a lot of hope because I've seen that happen in multitudes of cities, but what is not happening is action from that. So this initiative that we're starting is taking all of these folks who have been talking, and I will say on their behalf, many of them have gone through the very painful process of restructuring their boards and their top leadership to be more diverse. So I said that I hate DEI, there is something to be said about creating more space for black and brown people within business. But what I think is the missing critical piece is what needs to be done before you invite folks over. Like, make sure you have space for them. Like, making sure that the house is ready for your new guest. And we haven't done that part. 
So that's what this blueprint project is looking at. Um, everyone wants to focus on external goals, external factors. We want to look at education. We want to look at the disparity rates. I'm like, yes, that is all incredibly important. But until you clean up inside and until you make your business a place that is welcoming to everyone, and that means that you really have to restructure your business. And it's moving from profits to people and from buildings to community. Mm-hmm. And that's the mindset shift. So, and, and, and I like that you said all of that because that's what I usually, it'd be so weird. It's like, you know, I'm, I'm, the, I'm a black, black beyond, you know, I mean, African-centered schools, everything. And I'm sitting in business classes debating with like the most conservative white dude that just never give me a loan has worked as like a, a leading a president of a bank for years. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I'm telling him. Because he's like, yeah, you know, diversity just helps you make more money because that's usually how it would be pitched in business school. Like almost like if you get somebody of this, like, I guess, representative of this um, this group, this market share. Yes. Then they will help you market market to them. The reality, though. As you said, it's back to even it's cultural, too. Yes. So uh, a, a classic example was I was sitting Lord knows, it's like me putting foot in my mouth. But we're sitting at this uh, at this group, uh, the the Civic Commons group, and it's it's a lot of big philanthropy groups. So it's like Kresge, it's it's like um, the Knight Foundation, a lot of these other big organizations, yeah. millions of dollars into this, like cross cities, and that's the other thing. And this 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 nonprofit work, like the the higher up you get, it's like trips across the world and all these think tanks and talking, and it's like, all right, when do we do stuff? So we're talking and we're in Akron, we're downtown Akron, and they're talking about the poverty in Akron, and I'm like, we're at the baseball field, we're we're so far away from it. Same thing happened with that project when I was at Investor Trade talking about it. I'm like, you know, to come to this Renaissance Center, I had to pass three security guards. As a black man, I'm already whatever I would tell you. It's not at level and comfort. Hence my neighborhood. You know what I'm saying? You hit my corner, it's 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 boarded up houses, is you know, it's a couple people that uh that are uh street pharmacists, you know what I'm saying? And mm-hmm, and it's mm-hmm. it's for sure it's some it's some houses that definitely need new roofs, new steps and everything. And most people would look at this and say, oh, man, look at the blight and everything. I don't feel this is the safest I feel. And I often tell people this as a black man. I'm like, every place that America says is safe is a place that is dangerous dangerous. as hell for me. Absolutely. You know, so I think about suburbs and cul-de-sacs and oh, my God, I think like if I get lost driving to somebody's cul-de-sac. And I just get pulled over by the police or furthermore, some some, you know, some neighbor just looks out the window. They could even be black and say, what is he doing over here? Mm-hmm. And that could be the end of my life. Nothing scares me more. Whereas, you know, a loose pit bull, uh, urban, as they say, like urban wilderness, I'm, I, I feel more comfortable. I can navigate it. Yeah, it's kind of wild. He talking, but I I can tell that's not a tonality where it's going to be tongue violence. That's just animated. You know what I'm saying? So, like, that's where I say, like, culturally, to change some of these systems, it takes two things, I think. One, it takes the willingness of an organization, but two, it also takes the courage of the of the person that's representative of that community. Because if you're anything like me, I'm guessing you're in that same zone, too. I get kicked out of a lot of stuff for saying 
what I think needs to be said. Because that's the risk. And it's a lot of us that are like, shit, I need to keep my job. I ain't even going to say nothing. You know what I'm saying? Like when um, when 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 the Democrats in Congress all wore Kente cloth and took a knee. Like it was a lot of black people, I'm sure, that work in old staff that are like, this is some of the goofiest shit ever. But I ain't like, about to tell. How like, I'm yeah. not about to pull Nancy Pelosi to the side because then I'm going to lose my job. And you know what? I, she ain't going to listen to me for nothing else because that's the other thing. Mm-hmm. So how do you get people in the organization to even be at a comfort level to say what needs to be said beyond, you know, when the cameras is off and the focus group thing ain't going like, yo, man, all these people racist as hell. Like, Wendy, how do you get the organize the people in the organization to be comfortable to speak like that well thank you for asking that and that so going back to like putting on my dorky researcher hat again um going back to the framework and one of the cornerstones of that transformational change project was a uh, a really in-depth survey and it, it's an assessment tool but it's not a focus group so it, it's an assessment tool that's really looking at and asking your perception within a number of different domains so within the workspace and within your organization it's a really in-depth analysis of how you feel throughout your day throughout just working in that organization and we take all so in order to be a part of this um, pilot, you have agreed to a few things. And one of them is doing this assessment with your entire staff. So your board, like your secretaries, your janitors, absolutely everyone who is in the organization. And then our analysis is to see what your policies are, especially your diversity policies, but all of your policies, see where you believe you are, and then show you a breakdown of where you actually are in comparison to where you think you are. And that's where we then, we have, we can pinpoint certain areas to start to talk about and have interventions. How do you get people, you, you have to bring people together to talk. Like, that's it. That's the only way that this gets done. We can't just, like, tiptoe around and pretend like it's all going to be made better by just sitting people down at the same table. It's not, that's not how we get to know one another. And there's a number of different pieces that come into this. I'm kind of, like, watering it down because I'm seeing how, how far on time we are. But um, knowing where we are, mm-hmm. knowing our history knowing exactly where we are, where we want to go. So what have you said? What have you committed to? Like, okay, we're going to hold your feet to the fire. We're going to give you tools. We're going to give you coaches. We're going to give you interventions to help you get to where you say you want to be. But I'm going to hold you accountable. So you know, right now, there's no accountability within this space of mm-hmm. DEI. And I think that that's one of the biggest issues and why we don't see progress. I agree. It's it's like when your mom basically says clean up the room, but it's no consequence. Why would you clean up the room? But then when your mom say clean up the room, or you ain't gonna be able to go over your cousin's house tonight, it's like well, you know what? I'm time to clean up the room. <laughs> and and I'm gonna close out on this longer soliloquy too. But this fruitful discussion, I like it. I like longer longer form. Um, this summer, connected with another one of the partners of Detroit is different. Riverwise, I set in, I guess like a a racial intervention 
as crazy as this was. And it was so unique to sit in this space. So what happened was our editor was at a restaurant. I'm not going to name the restaurant because the editor is up to the editor to share. But pretty popular restaurant in Corktown of Detroit. And she's sitting outside and it's this white man, older white man, just complaining like, you know, these blacks and these Mexicans are just messing up uh, everything in the city. And when they get out of leadership, then, you know, everything can progress for the city. I mean, we were going in the right direction. We need to stay in that direction. Right. Little does he know. This happens to be an editor of a magazine. You know what I'm saying? And she's definitely not the uh, she ain't going to be a sit down and be quiet type of woman. So she goes back and forth with him. He's not hearing it. The general manager walks out, follows up. So we sit down and we have this discussion. And it was so interesting just hearing him say, you know, I'm not like this. My friends are worse. You know, the usual. Mm -hmm. And just his head down and his posture. And, you know, I mean, I'm in gross point. And then when I turned and I told him, because this is the thing that I would love to do. So if we can ever partner and do a study, uh, a Kari Frazier, Detroit is different study, because this is the caveat that's missing in a lot of this. Yeah. Especially when it comes to Detroit, and Michigan and a lot of these places, Chicago, Milwaukee, a lot of these Midwest places. I straight up told him, I was like, the reason your business is in Detroit is because you're exploiting the subsidies that, you know, you would never be able to get in gross point or Ann Arbor or where white folks are at. It's a lot of these businesses that are using government money, government grants. They're using uh, lending options from banks and government subsidies that are designed for people like me, Rebecca, you. But they're going to these other businesses because they're putting themselves in like opportunity zones, hub zones. And, and that's just what it's called now. But it was going on for forever. So hence, that's why I always push back when people say that I hate capitalism because it doesn't exist. So I told him, I'm like, you're not that good of a business person in the first place, because if you was good, you would take your restaurant out to where you live and sell that. Exactly. But you come here because, you know, you're going to get a hell of an advantage. You know, when you come here yep. and your friends look at you and they be like, oh, man, you're doing business in Detroit. So you can do 10 years of losing money, but your friends will keep investing in you. Nope. The minute you put your business out there in Gross Point, your friend's wife, that's a Karen, is going to go in there and it was bad service and your shit's getting shut down. You doing business here because you can exploit the idea of the same racism that you exercise. And no one in my mind, I haven't seen the studies on this, but those studies need to be taken taking the point too that these businesses doing business here. And let's mm -hmm. let's talk about a big elephant in the room, especially uh, the great rocket mortgage, Quicken Loans, whatever the one of the few mortgage lending companies to survive the quote unquote collapse. The pennies on the dollar that those properties, I'm not even going to say Gilbert per se, but it's many other people. These are pennies on the dollars that he could only get in a city like Detroit right. because at the time it had black leadership and it was superseded through an illegal bankruptcy. Yep. The people in Cleveland, because I know people in Cleveland, was like, we ain't having that. You can own this basketball team, but all these other ideas of our downtown, you better take that. Nope. You know, the 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 Cleveland Hospital got this on lock, man. You got to go to another city. And you're going to find a city with black people. You're going to exploit it. You're going to flip it. You're basically taking government subsidies yes. to boost and stimulate your business under the premise of these black people are so oppressed. And you keep them oppressed. And that's one of the biggest keys as far as from a business lens yes. that I feel like is never really looked at and explored. Because 
because these people are walking in almost like trying to feel like, oh, I'm holier than thou and I'm doing something good. But no, you're exploiting the fact. I look at a lot of these headquartered business businesses in predominantly black cities and know that they're exploiting opportunities that are supposed to be for black people yes. and lending and they're not held to the same standard because it's looked at like wow man you just doing business down there with them animals so uh, you can just you don't even necessarily need to make profit a lot one of the key ones was our former president very key in that a lot of those trump properties and then even his son-in-law when we think of jared kushner same way like these people are using impoverished areas yep. and zones and their whiteness to basically hold their business acumen and uh the delivery of their products or their services or goods to no standard at all absolutely and then you can tell because the city is not being rebuilt only certain sections and the same thing happened in newark there was this huge revitalization project to build the prudential center and mm -hmm. and ruckers my alma mater but oh what they are doing to that city, mm -hmm. the gentrification, it's outrageous. And there's like no recourse. Um, but I, I, not to get off on a tangent, but I, I think what you're saying is 100% true. And it's, um, I've actually not heard it put that way. But when you're talking, I'm like, yeah, that is exactly. And I really want to do that. Exactly. What and I hate happening. to say it, one of my favorite rappers has been involved with it twice. Jay Z, what he did with the Barclays Center, and then everybody that watched that last Super Bowl with Dr. Dre that Jay Z helped produce. You know the the amount of people they kicked out of Inglewood for that to happen. Mm -hmm. The the way that they were the the police were targeting Nipsey Hussle's uh, mini mall and strip mall and yes. his properties. Like this was this is. This is a new form of tactical structural racism. Yes. But these people are walking in acting like almost like I'm doing something for the good. But in reality, that's just the publicity angle of you exploiting what's been going on in the first and place. And why I say and why I wanted to push back that it is always about money in the bottom line. I got you. Be for that exact reason. Mm -hmm. And when you speak to these folks, like they're not thinking about black and brown people in the way that we think about it. Like they really aren't. And I can say having a very white family, I have, I have a white family and I have a black family and the conversations that I have with them, um, the life in which they live, what they have to think about on a daily basis is pretty much nothing. Mm -hmm. Like it just doesn't, it's not, something that is thought about at all in the way that like this is our day-to-day -day, like we have to think about this mm -hmm. all the time so when folks are like it's insidious and these businesses are doing it because they fucking hate black people i'm like actually they love money and the system in which was created in this country which they were born into privileges them and allows them to not ever think about what they're doing and how they're making that money, where it's coming from, why they have it, why things are the way that they are. And without having to be confronted with and ever having to question what's happening, because then it's like, oh, it's the system. I'm just working the system. I'm just doing this. And like, that's what gives me so much fucking hope. Kari, honestly, because when I have, as I said, I am flanked by Trump flags, my entire house. Mm -hmm. 
But when I have and I sit down with my neighbors and I'm able to have a heart-to-heart conversation with them, dramatic change happens. Hmm. And like, yeah, it takes a little time. It takes like two, two and a half hours of me having a heart-to-heart with my old, the old woman that lives next door to me. But by the end, you know, I started it with, with Black Jesus. This is one of my favorite things mm. to, to come with because they love talking about Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, that's my, kind of my entry point into this conversation. And by the end, she's asking if she can give me hugs and like, please mm. come talk to me. Um, please make sure I don't go to hell. Like, please, please that's help me, like help. help. So it, it, it's, we feel like what we see, the propaganda that we see and the loudest voices, the like the extreme right wing is incredibly loud. But when you take the time to go out into, and I can understand not wanting to do that, um, it can be very scary. Like I find a collection of a lot of white people used to be very scary to me, mm-hmm. even though I have a white family, but mm-hmm. like it was still just a scary space. So I push myself to be in those spaces and observe and talk and engage. And the more that I'm doing that, because I, I I moved myself out to the Midwest. I'm like, all right, I, let me do this. The more that I do it, the more every single day that I see such huge possibilities and hope when we just sit down and talk to one another. Because we, like, they, they're living in an abusive relationship and they know and they're not happy about it. Like they know that something is off that they've been lied to, but they can't figure out exactly Mm -hmm. what and where. And so they have these figures and where I live, it's only Fox channels on my television. It's only conservative radio that's playing everywhere. I have to seek out any other kind of news. So if you're just existing, and that's what's being put in all the time, and you get no other narratives, that's what you believe. But there's still a discordance, and they know that something is off. So when I'm able to sit down and have a heart-to-heart with them and be like, this is actually what's happening. You have been lied to this whole time. And like, you are so obsessed with Jesus, like Jesus is about fucking love. Like, what the fuck are you doing? And they're like, oh, my God, what am I doing? I'm like, I don't know. (laughs) The reason I would, the reason I think it's bigger than money. Okay. Is just because the black people that actually get access and and non-white people that get access to money in a way that they get slammed. What do you mean? Like they become a part of the system or they act different? Like I mean, you were just talking no, about Jay Z. Okay, so like let, me, he, let me give money, some examples. right? Like he got he 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 me, achieved a level of success mm-hmm. that maybe was only reserved for quote unquote white people, and now he's doing some of the same things. Most definitely, and this is what I mean more so. A black person that's like it's like golden handcuffs. And mm. the tokenism of it. <laughs> and the minute that you step outside of a certain line, yeah. you're the penalty. So I'm going to give, uh, here we go, inward disclaimer. But this is from my granddad, Don Scott. Shout out. So like he say, I remember one time I picked up a, um, uh, we were in the, in the grocery store. I picked up a black enterprise. Like, oh, man, I'm going to get that. And he was like, oh, man, put that shit down. And I was like, damn, granddad, why? <laughs> he was like, because any nigga on the cover of that always going to end up in the IRS trouble. He said that shit to me in like 96. Every time 
all the Detroiters that ended up on the cover of Black Enterprise that I could remember ended up in IRS trouble. Really? Even when we look at the opioid crisis, the opioid crisis that ran through America, which I think was really just stealing opium from Afghanistan through our good old, our good old, uh, you know, <laughs> good old boots on the ground. But with that, connected to that opioid crisis, you know, it was only one CEO that ended up going to jail. And he was a person of color. Of course he was. You know what I'm saying? So, like, when shit hits the fan, it's almost like if this thing were fair throughout, it would be fair throughout from top to bottom. But even the the level of money, the influence, what money can get you, even as a person of color here in this nation, you're not even you're you're not even in the same stratosphere. Oh, absolutely. So yeah, it's I, like, I, I and that's more so where I say like. It's like, yes, it's certain things you could do. If Jay-Z were to stand up and say, you know, if, if Jay-Z were to stand up and say something like what would be like a bold statement for Jay-Z? If Jay-Z were to stand up and say, look, the crime bill that came out that was supported by a lot of our nation was was sad and I recognize that this whole marijuana sentencing was bad but you need to get everybody out and I'm not talking about federal you need to have it go down to state and local because there are no people incarcerated with marijuana federal charges that type of act I think Jay-Z will end up with that same letter that uh, Mr. West his friend got and Chase Banker will return all his money within a matter of I don't know two days wow you yeah know? I mean yeah and that's where like I say like some of these levels of influence, because I think we we thrive in social capital, we thrive in creativity. I mean, money is an asset to be used and it can be used. But still, when you're dealing with their machine. Exactly. That's the point, though. Like money and our system of capitalism was created yeah. through mm-hmm. a structure of <laughs> I hate the word white supremacy because it's really it's a I feel like it's a complete misnomer. Homogeny. That's what that's what Yusef Shakur shout out Yusef is saying nowadays. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but the system and the way in which our country was created that that is it. Like yeah. we still have not come to terms with as you were saying our three original sins, and until we can come to terms with and have conversations about. The fact that this land was stolen, the wealth of this country is based on stolen labor. And until we have those conversations. And then the loan, like I always bring up, the loan still matters because even within, quote unquote, whiteness, it ain't all whiteness because for America to, quote unquote, go against the redcoats, which is another great story in propaganda and media. (laughs) It took a lot of money from the Dutch, the Portuguese, a lot of other white nations over there that eventually, when they were carving up Africa and colonizing, led to other fights. The Portuguese, the Doctrine of Discovery, 1444, that is the origin and that's the year that race was created to as the great separator race was created so that the Portuguese could justify to their people all of these folks that they stole from Africa. They needed something because the Portuguese people were like, what the fuck is this? We're not in a war right now. Where did all these people come from? Like, we don't what? 
and they wouldn't accept it. And the Portuguese were like, we really need to figure out, like, we need this free labor. Like, we, we got to figure out, figure this out. How can we get people to buy our new product? Mm -hmm. These kidnapped people, that's our new product. How can we get people to buy them? Mm. That's how race, that's how race was created. That is where, that is the origin. And that creation of race of black of the African nation is also what was used as the justification for taking the land from the Native Americans. They called the Native Americans the blacks of this land. Mm -hmm. And that was the theory. And it's the theory, the doctrine of discovery. All of that was created in the 1400s in Portugal and through the Vatican mm -hmm. to justify this new idea of being able to kidnap people and make them property. Yeah. And I like that you broke that down. And I know people like we can nerd out for, for forever <laughs> on this, but it does matter to today. Because if you don't connect both dots, you don't have the context of understanding how overwhelming, as you said, like you have this disconnect. And like from my years of even being a truck driver, because you're right, it's you, you have. You have the good old boy that's like, I'm, old, I'm you know, you had a good old boy that's like, yeah, this this billionaire from Manhattan identifies with me more than anything. His press, his his thought process is different than like a Steve Bannon yes. that under that understands the way that uh, separation, race, yes. uh, division, class, uh, caste systems, international diplomacy, like understands how to manipulate more of this in different ways. So to me those can kind of become some of the further separating factors absolutely and lean into those insecurities absolutely. take away and strip as you say the empathy and they exercise empathy on their own so now it's like i seem like i'm your only friend when i'm leading you down the wrong path exactly exactly see we just figured it out <laughs> well we definitely gonna get you back i usually always leave with the classic detroit questions but since you're not. I got to ask this question. Okay. I got to ask this question. All right. So I asked, what did your people think when you first got here? I asked, you know, uh, how did you respond to being here? What's the coolest thing that you like about Detroit? What's your culture? What's your Detroit culture kickback space that is like, okay, I'm digging this. So. I will have to say a caveat because I've not gotten to explore Detroit. Mm. But I will say the experience that had the biggest impact when I first moved here, and I didn't know it was an experience I needed to have, but it was going into the supermarket and just seeing like a whole store. All of the products are for people like me. Like mm -hmm. I, I've, in New Jersey, it's like a section of a small aisle are the only products that I can get for myself and like scouring the internet to like find things to find the right color makeup to find the right hair products like it's just always been a struggle and I never realized because it's just been my life and when coming here and walking into the supermarket I like almost cried because I was just like I've never there were a, I've discovered so many things. I finally have figured out my curls, I think, because I finally have access to products that are made for me. Um, so just that experience, and that also invigorates me to make sure that other people can have that experience. I, I didn't know how important that was for me and how like how big of an effect that would have on me. Just That's a date. Yeah. 
That's deep. There's definitely a lot of that here, as we know. <laughs> Shout out Hump the Grinder and Hair Wars. I'm going to be there this year. And we're doing the My Natural Hair Show again. Through Detroit is different this year. So that'll be the fall. Excellent. Thank you so much. We definitely going to get you. you back. I don't know how you want people to catch up with you and uh, keep up with all of this information. You got that big announcement coming. Uh, it'll be up and rolling and everything. How do people get in contact with you? So if you want to get in contact with me personally, you can check out equitydoula.com, Rebecca at Equity Doula. If you're interested in what New Detroit is doing, some of our initiatives, some of our business work, we're newdetroit.org or um, rerby at newdetroit.org. That works. Thank you so much. Thank you.